Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. In this podcast, Natalie and I provide our synopsis of the fiction story of Magic the Gathering and add our own flavor text and reactions as we go. We are in the heart of season four, which follows the story of the magic set March of the Machine, the finale of the Phyrexian art. Today, we are diving into episode nine of the main story, titled The Old Sins of New Phyrexia by K. Arsenal Rivera. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So Natalie, I think you're going to be jealous because I actually got to meet Kay Arsenal Rivera in Minneapolis. I'm so jealous right now. She is so fantastic. And I have to admit, I think I fangirled a little bit because I just wanted to talk to her about like, to be fair. Yeah, I just wanted to talk to her about like every little thing from this season. And I was trying so hard not to like talk her ear off, but she was absolutely delightful to talk to. And I just had to say that so I can make you jealous for a second, Natalie, but I'm sure you'll get to meet her soon. That is so amazing. Yeah, I I'm looking so forward to meeting possibly some of our some of our writers here on the podcast. I think that'd be so cool. So one of the episodes that I was so excited to talk to Kay Arsenal Rivera about was this last episode because it was so intense. Yeah, it was super intense. Like so much happened. Ren bonded with Realmbreaker, who beneath all that Phyrexian hate was actually eight, who grew beyond Realmbreaker and became one with Ren. And it grew into the multiverse, literally branching into the limitless planes. And together, they found Teferi in Zalfir. The coolest part about that was Ren basically opened up the pathway into new Phyrexia for Zelfir's soldiers to charge through, led by Teferi himself at the very end of that episode. And the episode was also really sad, right? Because we don't know what happened to Ren. The bonding might have just been too much. She had to say goodbye to Teferi almost immediately after finding him, which was heartbreaking. And she just didn't know what was going to happen to her, which is really scary. And we are now reaching the finale of March of the Machine. Things are about to come to a head and favors are turning against Elish Norn and the Phyrexians. I'm going to try and do a recap of our season so far in like a minute. Do you think I can do it? I love a good challenge and I have faith in you, Natalie. So let's do this. <clears throat> All right, let's do this. So Elish Norn, also called the Mother of Machines, is a Phyrexian tyrant who has infected many of our well-known planeswalkers in Magic the Gathering to fight for her against their will. This is including Nyssa, the elf nature mage, along with others like Ajani, Jace, Frasca, Nahiri, more. Chandra and Ren are at the heart of the resistance against Norn and return to New Phyrexia after Kaya and the other surviving planeswalkers failed to detonate Realmbreaker, which is a twisted version of the world tree that is responsible for invading the multiverse with innumerable Phyrexians into every single plane there is, with the Silex last season. Their plan was to have Ren bond with Realmbreaker, she's a dryad so she can do that, and find Teferi while she's at it. With the help of the Mirren resistance, including Koth and Malira, still hanging by a thread on a totally collapsed new Phyrexia now, Chandra and Ren make it to the Seed Core, only to be nearly completely destroyed by Nyssa. 
Chandra can't hurt Nyssa. She just loves her too much. So their plan was almost in ruins until Elspeth, now an archangel, came to the rescue. Elspeth and Elish Norn faced off head to head while Chandra raced Ren to the base of Realmbreaker. They finally make it and Ren merges herself with the tree, finds Zalfir and Teferi and opens the way for war to descend on New Phyrexia for Norn to finally meet her match. It's the whole might of Zalfir and our surviving planeswalkers and Archangel Elspeth against the mother of machines, her evangel planeswalkers and her praetors, Vorinclex and Jin Cataxius. Oh my gosh, that is already so much. Oh, and let's not forget Karn, Golem Planeswalker all the way back from season one, who's been disassembled by Norn and in agony in Norn's throne room this whole time. Also, we'd seen other planes of the multiverse fight back against the invasion. Quintorius on Strixhaven managed to fight back the Phyrexians with the help of his fellow students and the invocation. And Liliana. That's right, Liliana did help. We have Huatli, who managed to save Ixalan by calling forth the Elder Dinosaurs. And if you remember, Tyvar Kell had jumped into the mouth of a Phyrexian serpent on Kaldheim. Ajani had been converting the Theros gods into the ways of Phyrexia. Pia Nalar, Chandra's mother, was careening out of the sky on Kaladesh. And the Riveteers on New Capenna were desperately fighting back against Atraxa's relentless anger. Oh my goodness. Not only has a lot happened so far this season, but that was a mouthful. Thank you, Natalie. I feel like uh, you need a water break now. (laughs) I don't think I managed to quite do it in a minute, but it was close enough. (laughs) That's really good. All right. So reason for that all encompassing recap is that in this episode, we're about to get a lot of the answers where all of these moving pieces are coming together in the apex of our finale. Now, we start this collision back on Nukapina from the perspective of a young angel named Giada. Now, Giada knows Elspeth well from the fiction story from Streets of Nukapina. Highly recommend you go check out that story if you want all the context. And she and her fellow angels on Nukapina, having watched all the horrors of Phyrexia descend on their homeworld and Elspeth rise up to defend her friends, realize they have to act. Especially when a corrupted angel, we know her as Atraxa, is wreaking havoc on the people of Nukapina. And this plane is going to fall if they do nothing. And the story describes this well. It says, Stone springs to life. Angels that have waited centuries to serve again hear the clarion call to battle. What have they waited for, if not this? Shrouded in halo, an essence that repels Phyrexia, the angels burst forward and protect the people of Nukapenna, joining the fray with the Riveteers fighting back. The Riveteers have been the ones fighting from the skyscrapers and the rooftops. I mean, all of the families of Nukapenna have, but I think the Riveteers are especially well-equipped to be able to effectively fight off the Phyrexians. And here's why. Riveteers are the engineers. They are the builders, the ones who built the city from the ground up and held it all together. They're used to getting their hands dirty. While Atraxa defends herself from the force of the angels and leading her Phyrexian troops deeper into the city, destroying everything and everyone she meets... Atraxa doesn't notice the Riveteers doing what they do best, using engineering against the Phyrexians. So the Riveteers disassemble the work of their forefathers. Tools used to forge connections are now used to sever them violently in gouts of flame. Atraxa doesn't notice them going about their work because she sees herself as superior. And that is so very Atraxa, right? The... I have better things to do than waste my time on petty organics type of attitude. And this is her undoing. 
the Reveteers managed to undo the whole structure of the city. And I'll quote the story for you on what the scene is like, because I thought it was really fantastic. An explosion rips through the structures of the city. Deep within the structure of the Mezio as she is, she does not notice that it's begun to topple until it's already too late. In the end, it is not the shield of the angels that kills her, nor the machinations of the demons. It is the city itself. The gleaming glass and steel tower of Nukapena collapse atop her, cut free from its mighty pylons and suspension systems. From their perch, the angels watch centuries of mortal work crash into the earth. Whoa. So Nukapena, the city, literally crushed Atraxa. She was so preoccupied being a glorified commander going for the obvious threat, the angels. I just have to say... This one broke my heart. One of the things that breaks my heart over and over again in these episodes, I've I've realized I'm an architecture nerd because the thing that really breaks my heart is like when the buildings fall. And this this one in particular, you know, maybe it's because it feels a little bit like an American city and it's just like very tangible feeling to me. But hearing like centuries of mortal work falling down And they really do a good job in the story of describing what, like, the beautiful buildings of Nukapen. It's Art Deco, which is beautiful. And, um, and, you know, it's the stonework that they've, like, chiseled out themselves over hundreds of years. And it just breaks my heart. Yeah. It's falling apart. We've seen so many cities destroyed this season, if you think back on it. We saw Tawashi destroyed way back in episode three which was, you know, one of the most magnificent cities in Kamigawa. And then we had seen Jiripur destroyed on Kaladesh. It was a brief scene, but we had seen it completely in ruins because of the Phyrexian invasion. Cities in Ixalan, like large ancestral cities in Ixalan, were abandoned and destroyed because of the Phyrexians. I mean, it's just, and now Nukapena. And Nukapena is a huge city you you like we had quoted from the story there hundreds of years worth of mortal work gone and it was to destroy Atraxa but like you said Harless that's not without a casualty and that casualty was Nukapena the city itself the city itself exactly but I will say it seems like the perfect justice that the Riveteers, the hardest working family faction of Nukapena, like these are your blue collar workers. These are people who go in and get stuff done and they build the city that everyone else lives in. They are the ones that managed to take down the Praetor that had come to take their city away from them. And I love that so much. It's such a good like rising up story. They built this city. They get to decide when to take it down and for what purpose. And they don't need angels to come and save them. They save themselves. Perfect justice, as you said. So Giada, the young angel that she is, she can't quite join in the melee yet. But she's watching with this excitement as the tides turn against Phyrexia on Nukapena. And as soon as Atraxa is gone, the branches of the invasion tree begin to retreat, leaving portals in their wake. And these portals lead directly in to Theros. And Giada and the other angels know it's time. With Nukapena saved, they know they must rise up to defend the entire multiverse. And I'll read this from the story. Giada grins. This is the start of things, the start of what she's been waiting for. She hurriedly shouts at the others. This is where we're needed. This is where we've got to go. Help them out if you can. Angels soar through the air, hurtling at unimaginable speed toward the portal. On the other side, they burst high above the sea. 
The angels displaced in this way feel no fear, no hesitation, no regret. They simply do as they've always done. They protect. I love angels. I love angels so much. Nice reading. That like gave me goosebumps. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well done. So the angels pour into Theros to help. And they also fly into a myriad of other planes too, all simultaneously. We'll get to that in just a moment. But on Theros, Heliod, one of the gods that had been befouled by Phyrexianized Ajani, witnesses the angels coming, totally distracted by the sudden appearance of the light-wreathed army of angels coming in from the portal. And during this, a woman creeps up behind Heliod while the angels venture closer to the scene. It's Kaya. She goes into her purple ethereal form and, like the efficient assassin she is, slices Heliod's throat with her dagger. And as the angels are flying in, They are protecting people with these little tiny miracles. And it is so amazing. And as Kaya gets her dagger into the throat of Heliod, the angels that are flying by make sure that no oil splatters onto her. Yeah, that's an important thing where the angels actually have this this protective essence that will protect the the mortals nearby from Phyrexian influence. That's actually really important to hit. And that's important for future scenes as well. Meanwhile, Giada witnesses the angels of Nucapenna swooping into other various planes too. She's still standing in Nucapenna. So imagine the portals are like a bunch of different like round TV screens essentially. And she's watching them shift channels to different planes. But the angels fly through these portals to protect the multiverse against the Phyrexians in their various battles, all in desperate throes of a fight they cannot win alone. And Giada senses the charge through all these portals. The angels burst into unknown planes, just countless planes, like ones they've never seen, ones they've never heard of. And then finally, the portals turn to New Phyrexia. And Giada sees what she's been waiting for. It's Elspeth, changed, like her, into a new angel. And to summarize a little bit about what happened in New Capenna here... Giada and Elspeth are good friends. They had adventures together on Nucapenna and both have come to be angels now. So Giada is really proud that Elspeth speaks in the angel way, which she calls the right way, to her almost telepathically through this internal voice only heard by them. And Giada confirms to Elspeth that the angels are here to help. We transition from here to Teferi's perspective just after this. Just as Zalfir begins their march into New Phyrexia through the portal, fighting Phyrexians as they go. The warriors of Zalfir are incredibly efficient, so strong and courageous, fighting valiantly for Teferi and for Zalfir. They have been waiting and preparing for a very long time for this, after all. The Zalfirans pour into New Phyrexia, colliding into the Phyrexian onslaught that had surrounded Koth and the remaining Mirans at the base of Realmbreaker, where they had been protecting Ren during the Bond last episode. Teferi turns to Koth and with a grin says, the two planes are swapping places. Nuphorexia is being flung out into the abyss and Zalfir is finally coming home. Can I just say that is so cool. <laughs> that is so cool that, Realm, that Ren is doing that. Exactly. It's really incredible. And especially because last time, last episode, like Ren was going to do question mark with Nuphorexia. Uh, and now we have the answer. She's going to switch places because Zalfir has been floating out in this like question mark space for a while, kind of in the abyss. And uh, New Phyrexia has, of course, been able to connect to all the other multiverses. So now they're swapping places so that Zalfir is back where it rightfully belongs and Phyrexia can go exist in the abyss where it belongs. I guess that's unfair to say to the abyss. They don't even deserve Phyrexia, but still. (laughs) All right. (laughs) 
<laughs> so together, the Mirans and the Zelfirans, led by Koth and Teferi, begin their charge. And I'll read to you again from the story here. A veil of multicolored light settles over the army's vibrant garments like the blessing of a distant god. Power prickles along their skin. They know what danger the black oil presents them. They know how to counter it. Lances pierce Phyrexian serpents and nail them to the platform's surface. Hurled stones crush them underfoot. Rains of fire melt the enemy in place. Breath of ice makes them brittle. The blow of a great hammer shatters them into hundreds of pieces. For years, Zalfir has awaited the chance to prove their mettle against these Argent slags. Now that they are in the thick of the fight, there is a prideful joy in the air. Cedars start their chants, calls and responses echoing along the mouths of Ascari, Akinji, and Altali. You cannot break what is woven together. And I just love this line. The strength of Zalfir right here is so profound and such a relief. It is exactly what can hold off the Phyrexians and maybe even beat them. Well, let's not get too ahead of ourselves just yet because we still have Elish Norn to contend with, along with her praetors, Vorinclex and Jengitaxius. In fact, the former praetor, Vorinclex, is closing in around Teferi, Chandra, and Koth almost as soon as the armies charge into the fray. So for those who haven't visualized or maybe haven't even realized how fearsome Vorinclex is, because we haven't talked about him all that much in the podcast yet, just for a quick description of Vorinclex, he's huge. He's like 12 feet tall, and he's made of like bone and raw sinew red color. And he has this like patchy fur mantle across his shoulders, and then this skull that just has these horns and almost... Reminds me of a almost like a dragon, but kind of more ram like like if, if a ram or a goat met a dragon skull, basically. And I'm imagining these horns that kind of sprout out from his skull. And he's just huge. He's if you remember, he was the praetor who led the hunter maze level on Meriden. And so he has this whole mentality of predator and prey, and he is an apex predator. So he is a predator of immense strength and immense power, and he just has brute strength. And that and that is what he he's terrifying. Natalie, it sounded like you almost said apex predator and then fixed it to apex predator. But I also think apex predator is correct, right? Like he is an apex predator. Like he's one of the scariest, toughest, biggest, baddest predators, and he's here to contend with them. Yeah. And there's actually this showcase piece by Richard Luong from Kaldheim that is probably my favorite art in the whole set but it is horrifying. So it's the alt art from the card Vorinclex Monstrous Raider done in this pen and ink comic style with Vorinclex's head in all of its fanged clawed terror, literally holding a human, which looks tiny in comparison in his claw-like hand while he tears apart what I can only assume is like muscle or bloody tissue with his teeth. And it is such a stark picture of what Vorinclex is Like you said, an apex predator, an absolute Phyrexian monstrosity. Yeah, it looks like he's eating like raw beef jerky. Yeah, that's what I imagine. It's like like, he's tearing it apart. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, Like y'all know at this point, I love horror. I love gnarly. So like this piece is really cool. It's like just like his gnarled claws and just the way he's like just so callously and carelessly like ripping through this 
meat stick <laughs> that he's eating. <laughs> and the human looks so small. It really gives a perspective over how small humans are in comparison to Vorinclex. So it's just the, the piece just does does it so well and just showing how huge he is in comparison to Teferi and our other humans here. And, and remember, Vorinclex was the leader of the Hunter's Maze. Now, that's a layer of Nuphorexia we mentioned last season, but remember, they didn't go there. They bypassed the Surgical Bay and the Hunter's Maze and told them you're being spared, essentially, by not having to go to those layers. And what we do know about the Hunter's Lair is that it is very survival of the fittest mentality. Like Natalie said, it's like a predator-prey situation. And anyway, all of that, all of that is headed straight for Chandra, Teferi, and Koth. Now, luckily, Teferi, he's a time mage, and that power is amazing. And even Vorinclex, mighty and huge as he is, slows to a near stop once he hits the wall of Teferi's magic. And while Teferi slows down Vorinclex, Koth and Chandra team up with their fiery abilities to fend off the Phyrexians flooding in around them. And I want to just mention this little casual thing from the story that I thought was really cute. No matter who you are, no matter what you, how bad you are, how big you are, you look silly when you are frozen in time, moving in slow motion. And I just imagine Ford and Clegg's just like, that's how I imagined it too. Anyway, sorry to mean to derail. Like almost like bad slow mo, like you know, like in the movies, and it's like big bad Ford and but like in slow motion. I got to imagine it's pretty silly. Yeah. Unfortunately, Teferi's magic can't last forever, and Vorinclex eventually finds purchase. He's able to break through Teferi's magic and fizzles it back into real time. And from here, he is tracking down his prey. I mean, he tears off like the jaw of his of his mount that Teferi is is riding, and Teferi is toppled to the ground. And now Vorinclex is over him, roaring into his face. But Teferi is not afraid of the praetor. Not this time. And while Vorinclex was just honed in on Teferi and was going to hunt him down, a Zalfir warrior, an Ascari woman named Shella, ambushes Vorinclex from behind, and she cleaves Vorinclex's head from his shoulders with a blazing sword. Another completely justified ending, in my opinion. Vorinclex's nature is to be honed in on his prey, and so she took advantage of that. He didn't see the threat from behind because he was distracted by Teferi, which is just what Atraxa did. They clearly have weaknesses that pretty much all revolve around their egos here. Now, Shella helps Teferi up from where he had fallen from Vorinclex's attack before she's off again into the battlefield. And I just want to note here, Shella, as she saves Teferi, to me, it was this moment of like, Zalfir really has accepted Teferi back. Zalfir yes. really has welcomed him home. And I thought that was really beautiful to see someone defend him and really come to his aid, specifically to his aid, not just I'm helping somebody. No, I am protecting you because you are Teferi. So Absolutely. that was incredible. Yeah. Now, after this happened, Elspeth, who is kind of like flying right above Teferi, and Teferi looks up and is surprised at first to see that Elspeth is an angel. But it immediately makes sense to him and he just accepts it because, well, it really does fit Elspeth. She deserves it this. Totally she really, does. Yeah. It totally does. Elspeth goes on to say that she will handle Nyssa, but she needs to ferry to handle Jenkataxius and Elishnorn. The angels from New Capenna have come to their aid, but the battle is far from won. The good news about the angels being here, though, is that the oil cannot affect them. It is paramount that everyone take advantage of this short-lived immunity while they can. 
because they don't have much time left. All around them, Nuphorexia begins to fall apart. This is Ren's doing as she's transferring the planes. Structures tear and break. Slabs of metal plummet down. Distant towers topple. Monuments shatter. Vats crack and oil slicks the walkway. These are the death throes of Nuphorexia. And Elish Norn is wailing along with her plane. Desperately fighting, but looking worse for wear. She looks ragged, almost torn apart, barely being held together, and still screeching her same old Phyrexian scripture that the multiverse is hers, and they should accept their fate. Teferi has the mages in his company direct their magic, all of their magic, towards her, and all matter of elements slam into her chest and makes her stagger and bleed black oil. But she's still standing. She's standing, but she's furious. She screams out, why aren't any of you protecting me? And she's referring to her Phyrexian minions here. She says, I am Phyrexia. And this is where Jengataxius has had enough. He makes his move. He turns on Norn right there in the heat of battle. Jengataxius is now riding atop a giant war machine with an entire army of Phyrexians protecting him with their lives. He tells her, your ego is a tumor on whatever talent you may have had. New Phyrexia has evolved beyond you but your scraps may serve some use. Oh, snap. I mean, we saw this coming. Norn and Jinkataxius were already at each other's throats last episode, but here and now, Jinkataxius is definitely the more powerful one of the two praetors. I noticed as soon as Norn started using I, Phyrexia kind of rejected her almost. It yeah. does go against Phyrexia to be self-consumed or to have any sort of ego like what Jinkataxius said. Yeah, and Jengataxius, like I said, he's had enough. He's about to full-on betray Norn and destroy her for parts. But then, a planeswalker joins the scene. They hear the familiar crack of a planeswalker coming in. And it is a Johnny. A Johnny? Well, he's still Phyrexianized. Aww. But he jumps in to protect Norn, of all people. One of the only ones to try to protect her at all. And he's powerful and deadly. He declares... Phyrexia stands united or not at all. And to me, that was like a little piece of like real Ajani coming through. That's like real Ajani in the only way that he can be. I mean, he's rising up to defend Norn, but he's honorable. He knows what the right thing is to do. And he's not going to turn his back on Norn because infighting in the Phyrexians is also blasphemous. So it's like me too. I was kind of excited to see Ajani kind of almost stand up for his morals in almost this weird twisted way. Totally. Right. It was interesting. And and again, it's like, you know, with Tamiyo in her own way, she rejected Phyrexia. Ajani is easily just as far gone as Tamiyo. But here he is still showing a little maybe glimmer of who he used to be. So Jengataxius's forces leap at Ajani and Norn, ambushing them. And the Phyrexians now fight against other Phyrexians. Teferi decides to just let them destroy each other and weaken Norn. He cannot stop them. However, as soon as Ajani is blasted by all these different types of magic, he falls onto his back and is immediately netted and bound by the Zalfiran warriors who rush in to end him. But Teferi instinctively just says, this is Ajani, right? Like Ajani, his fellow planeswalker, his friend. So Teferi tells his forces to take Ajani alive rather than kill him. And the Zalfir warriors do. They drag Ajani, who's fighting and thrashing against his restraints, from the fight. And meanwhile, the other Zalfirans capitalize on such a rare, fleeting moment of opportunity. 
the infighting between Jin Cataxius and Norn weakens both praetors. And this time it is Jin Cataxius who will meet his end through this very mistake. His focus was so much about Norn. It was like he'd forgotten about the mere organics here fighting him. And this is from the story. Always the Zalfiran war chants and drums lend them vigor. As Phyrexia dies around them, the Zalfirans are more alive than they've ever been. When the praetor turns to behold the splendor of their valor, he laughs, for he does not know fear. Is this the best you can muster? Organics? He gestures with his claw, spikes shoot from the flanks of his war machine, impaling the beasts who strive to break it. Blood spurts onto the glass as the animals howl. Look around, Teferi calls. It seems to me Nufarexia's the one getting left behind. And Teferi, in a very cool moment, unleashes his time magic while ducking a strike from a centurion. Everything slows to a stop around him. Even Jengataxius himself. He can only hold it for a second, but it's enough. A Zalfiran warrior leaps up with a warhammer and crashes it down onto Jengataxius's war machine, cracking it right through the glass that had protected him. And foul-smelling liquid gushes out, covering Teferi's robes, which gross. And to quote the story here, new clothing will be a small price to pay to see Jengataxius plummet into his own creation, even smaller when his own creations start eating him. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, so Jengataxius is like dead. Like, I hate to say this, but it's about time. Jengataxius was probably the most horrifying praetor. He was responsible for so many atrocities done to our planeswalkers, such as Tomio. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Harless. It's It was brutal how Jengataxius died, but it needed to happen. And now this is really not looking good for Norn and the rest of the Phyrexians, is it? Not at all. Before we move on, I want to point something out about the Zalfirans. This is actually from earlier in the story, but this is a good point to mention it. Earlier, Natalie read from the story and she said, when the praetor turns to behold the splendor of their valor, he laughs for he does not know fear. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the story that tells you why this is being brought up, why this fear is important here. On Dominaria, it was often said that Zalfirans did not know fear, but the Zalfirans said otherwise. So far as they were concerned, they knew fear better than anyone else. You could find fear sitting by the fires near nightfall. Every parent who sent a child to war chatted with fear in the mornings and at night. Fear was with you when you surveyed your fields and wondered if there'd be enough for the coming season. The truth of the matter is this. When you know fear and invite fear into your house, when you treat fear as you'd treat anyone else, fear can no longer frighten you. Your community will look after your fears, and you will look after theirs. The multiverse is afraid of Nuphorexia. Very well. Let Zalfir look after that. And boy, oh boy, are they looking after that. Oh, I just, yeah. I had to bring that up. It's just... Oh, it's fantastic. To me, it's, it's just, it's the heart of the Zalfirian people is they aren't afraid. They they view fear as a friend, and they they greet it like a friend, and I think that's so important. Now... The battle heavily swings in favor of Teferi, Zalfirin forces, and the remaining survivors, like the Mirans and our planeswalkers. So much so, in fact, that Teferi has an opportunity to walk towards Realmbreaker and see what remains of Rin. And unfortunately, she's gone. Oh no. Rin. Teferi's old friend has become a delicate ashen statue. Precious little of her bark remains intact. Teferi swallows at the sight. 
When he looks over the armies once more, the thought is loud in his mind. None of this would have happened without Ren's intervention. And he thinks to himself, there must be something I can do to help. And there, as he studies her, he can see it. There's a little acorn hidden within the ash. And he notes, it will grow strong as she did on Zalfir. Now Teferi carefully pockets this little acorn and assesses the falling ends of the battle. Koth and the Mirans, alongside the Zalfiran warriors and the angels, are still here. They're fighting with strength and persistence, not backing down, and it is paying off. Except that New Phyrexia is literally crumbling apart right now <laughs> because Ren has switched it with Zalfir. They don't have much time left. And Koth even shouts to Teferi to get to safety, but Teferi refuses to run away. And right then is when Nyssa attacks them. She screams out, you ruined everything. Here, Chandra tries to plead with her to see reason, to beg for her to come back. New Phyrexia is gone, but of course, Nyssa doesn't listen. And so this time, Chandra knows she can't attack her. She tries a different tactic. She approaches Nyssa with her hands up and says, if you want to kill me, here I am. But I know you can't. Ah, that's so Chandra. Yeah. And it's so intense and it's scary because like, well, will she? Right? Ah. Yeah. Like this is Phyrexianized yeah. Nyssa. She's had every opportunity. I think what, what Chandra's thinking is that Nyssa has had every opportunity to kill Chandra and still hasn't. And so I think there's something fighting within Nyssa too that can't hurt Chandra or can't kill her at least. And so I think what Chandra does here is just just enough of a distraction for Elspeth to fly up behind Nyssa and sort of knock her out with the handle of her sword. And Nyssa is rendered unconscious from this and she falls from her perch that she had built with all these roots. But Chandra is there to catch her. She races for it and she actually catches her. So just to recap that really fast, Chandra's like, you're not going to kill me. I know you're not. Distracts her. Elspeth takes the hilt of her sword and just bops her in the back of the head so hard she falls unconscious and Chandra catches her. So Nissa's kind of out of the picture. But the Phyrexians are quickly crumbling apart, as is their world. However, there's one last thing Teferi has to do. Teferi approaches Karn, who asks him pretty coherently and humbly for just a moment so he can try to reassemble himself. He wants to be able to walk out of here. And he does. He uses pieces of Phyrexia itself, metal slabs that are literally falling all around them, to build up his body again. And it must take a massive amount of energy to do that, especially considering Karn was already in a really weakened state. I mean, he'd essentially been tortured for months, years. We don't really know. And this also goes to show how weak Elish Norn is at this point, because Karn is one of Elish Norn's most prized prisoners, and she had kept him, you know, basically indisposed and disassembled this whole time. The fact that Karn is strong enough to be able to break past that, the Phyrexian influence that had been on him, and reassemble himself, that's just, I think it shows both things, that Karn has a strength within him, and I think Norn is also beginning to fall apart here, yeah. too. And now with a new body, Karn knows what he must do. On the horizon, Norn's torn through most of her own army. No longer does she stand tall and proud above the other new Phyrexians, for they have taken her legs. Crawling towards them is a skinless abomination. Even her headpiece has been shattered, yet she still pulls herself forward. Clawing through the fields of dead, she reaches for the portal. 
We don't have long, says Teferi. No, we don't, agrees Karn. Karn instructs everyone to leave Nuphorexia through the portal. Now. But Karn stays. And as Nuphorexia falls apart around him, Karn describes the heaviness he feels. Not just physically, he's literally made of more metal than he was a few minutes ago, so that's a good thought, but no, he means mentally and emotionally, because all the burdens of his past mistakes are right there in front of him to witness. His creation, Mirrodin, then Nuphorexia, that had risen and then fallen, and the Phyrexians too, all his creation, they had risen and now were falling. And he has so much remorse for all of it. And with the last of his energy, the last of what we know Karn to be deep down, he approaches Norn and with his planeswalker ability of being able to manipulate metal, he disassembles her. He literally takes her head and tears the pieces of metal from her until she is nothing but a red smear of sinew and blood on the floor. And <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah very yeah. exciting moment here and and well earned Karn I feel like being able to disassemble for a nice word uh the person who has caused so much destruction to you personally and to other people is incredible but also right he's taking responsibility yeah and this is from the story so this is not a happy moment for Karn we're kind of rejoicing as readers and listeners. We're like, woo, Nord's dead. But obviously this is very difficult for Karn. Um, so I'm, I'm quoting this from the story on what he feels in this moment. To assemble something is a delight, a puzzle that pleases him in a way few things do. The interplay of connected gears and axles is as exquisite to him as any song. Music, he's found, is quite like building a machine. Every piece of an orchestra must function in respect to and in tandem with its fellows. A conductor oversees the processes much as an engineer oversees his creation. In music and in creation, there is unity. In destruction, there can only be solitude. Oh, I love that line. In music and in creation, there is unity. In destruction, there can only be solitude. That is is it gave me it's shivers. so good it rings so true it's it's good lord k arsenal rivera you're a good writer <laughs> all right so Karn forces himself to be present and aware of what he is doing instead of looking away and taking the easy way out he burns the image into his memory forever and i just have to say i think this scene in particular was so well written the death of elish norn was so poetic Almost. I, it made sense that Karn had to be the one to do it. He was the father of machines, the one to fight this from the beginning, all the way back to our first episode, Harless, on this podcast. He was the one from the beginning. And in the end, it had to be Karn. And this is a way for Karn to finally find peace about it. We know Karn, right? At this point, we know Karn really well. He's always going to carry the guilt about being the one to create the Phyrexians the one to be directly responsible for all the loss the multiverse has had to endure at their hands. The atrocities are indirectly his to bear. But Karn saw to the end of it. He destroyed Elish Norn, conscious and himself, and not at all the vision of a Phyrexian, despite being a machine himself. And I think we can only hope that Karn will find it in himself to forgive himself for all of it. This is from the story, and I'll quote it here. 
You can't run away from your mistakes. You have to fix them. That starts with confronting your wrongs. And this episode actually ends with Karn walking away from all of this, Norn's body on the floor, and he joins Teferi in Zelfir, which welcomes him home. Oh my goodness, what an episode. This one, I really, I really yeah, enjoyed this... reading this episode. So much happens, but it feels really well paced. It takes you through each scene and gives it a beginning and an end in this really satisfying way. Yeah. This one was really good. I highly recommend going to mtgstory.com to read it. Um, this this one was just absolutely fantastic. This whole arc was has been absolutely incredible. And of course, we're not done yet. All right, Natalie, I have one question for you. You have felt very strongly about Karn in the past. I have. I want to know, what do you think about Karn now? Oh, I, <laughs> I have to admit... I'm totally pro card now. Like after after reading this episode, it definitely changed my mind about car. And it, it was such an interesting journey for me to go through Dominaria United and just be so frustrated yes. with Karn the whole time. Just so fr- frustrated with him. And I couldn't I couldn't quite get on side Karn. So if you've been so listeners out there, if you've been listening to us since the beginning, I've kind of been on, you know, Karn, why are you doing this? Like, <laughs> rah, 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 rah. And now reading this, it just felt so poetic and beautiful. And I was just so proud of Karn for doing this and having the strength to do this and being the one to end Elish Norn. It just, it it kind of put me onto the side of, yeah, Karn, I, I like you now. <laughs> and one of the things that I just am so heartbroken over is Ren. Ren is an acorn now. Yeah. An acorn. Yeah. Now. Little baby yeah, acorn. Now maybe, maybe we plant that acorn and we grow a new Ren. We'll see. Right. We'll have to see what happens with that. I mean, we still have a lot of questions that need resolving from the main story. Yeah. We need to know the fate of Ajani and Nissa who were taken alive and still Phyrexianized. I add when Phyrexia is gone, are they going to survive? Can they be saved? And what if they can't be, you know, like, can Chandra and Elspeth let them go if they can't be saved? I mean, Malira, who was one of the only people who can cure Phyresis, was really injured in the last episode that we did. Now, she's not she's not gone, but she's pretty injured. And we've lost angels in this process. So there's less halo in existence now. So we who knows how or if we can unphyrexianize a Johnny and Nissa, but they are no longer in the claws of Phyrexia directly, which is a huge, a huge plus. We will cover all of that and more in our next finale episode, dropping right around the corner next week. But next week episode is not actually the last episode in this season of the podcast, because we have a special bonus episode after that. As always, you can read this story and so much more at mtgstory.com. And if you like today's episode, do us a favor and leave us a review. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes coming to you soon. Thanks for listening. And as always, have have a magical magical day. day.